Hello and welcome to Wildest Cougar Stories. I'm Carolina and today I actually don't have Craig with me for once. <laughs> it will be the first podcast without him uh, because he is in Kruger, he's hosting guests uh, and doing a Kruger trip with them. So he's busy working hard uh, and also having fun in Kruger. So far I've heard they've had some incredible sightings, but I'll leave that to Craig for when he joins us next time. But today, instead of Craig, I have Andrew McDonald with me, who is a amazing wildlife photographer. He also does a lot of work in Africa, but he's also been to Antarctica and lives in Scotland and does a lot of photography there, especially landscape in Scotland that is stunning. So he's a really cool person to chat to and we are going to be answering a lot of questions from you guys on Instagram talking a little bit about what does it actually mean to be a wildlife photographer and how do you make a living from this? What is the job that we actually do? And yeah, answering all those kind of questions and also dig a little bit deeper into the technical stuff uh, when we're shooting and uh, different settings and all those kind of things. So that's a lot of fun. We get a little bit nerdy about the uh, photography aspect, but I hope you guys are going to enjoy that and enjoy this episode in general. And do check Andrew out and his fantastic work on Instagram and YouTube, uh, etc. And I'll link it all below. Hope you guys enjoy this one. Okay, how's it, Andrew? Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, or me without Craig this time. Uh, but yeah, awesome to have you here. Yeah, thanks very much. It's awesome to be here. Uh, sadly, Craig can't make it, but I'm sure we'll still have a good conversation about photography. 100%. I think he uh, he also, as much as he loves photography and he's definitely, you know, he's getting into it more and more and he's getting really good. Uh, he's not as nerdy as we are. Uh, so I think he wouldn't enjoy this conversation as much. And he's like, I think he, he's happy to like let us this have this like photography type of podcast um, where we do talk. Yeah. All things like more technical stuff and all these kind of things uh, we're gonna go through some questions that people sent in on Instagram uh, about like working with photography full-time and like what does that mean and you know how does that whole thing work and also we'll talk about a little bit about gear and all those kind of things so we're gonna get into like the nerdy stuff so I think Craig is happy to sit this one out <laughs> I'm sure he's you'll be happy to actually listen to his first podcast without knowing what happened I'm sure as well yeah absolutely absolutely so yeah, I think that's going to be cool. But to get get started, um, can you introduce yourself, tell the listeners a little bit about you and um, yeah, what you do and how you got into photography, all of that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. So um, my name is Andrew McDonald and I am originally from Scotland. That's where I was born and raised. And then, yeah, about 10 years ago, I got the, the safari bug and ended up being out here in Africa. It's first of all, to do a little bit of guiding and then slowly it's become more and more content creation and uh, photography and videography. So that's pretty awesome. much a quick recap on the journey, but we can go into more detail as well. Yeah, and I do want to mention there that you actually did your guiding uh, qualification at the same place that I did. And that's, exactly. I think, how we actually connected from the start. Not that we were Yeah, it was, I think time. it was through Campfire. Exactly. Uh, we weren't there at the same time, but I, I think I heard about you during my Fagasa because 
Tish, who's the principal, or was, she's retired now, but uh, was the principal trainer there. She was talking about you doing photography and doing all these cool things. And I remember oh, okay. we looked at like, she showed us your Instagram and she was like, look, he's in like helicopters and he's doing this and this. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, so I did mine in 2015. Oh yeah, so that's about three years earlier than, than I did mine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm yeah. sure when I was doing that, Tish was also showing me somebody else's stuff. I think it was uh, Albie Venter at the time. She's like, you know, he was he's doing this now. You could go and do something like this. So that's she awesome, was right hey? in the end. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's the cool thing with like what I think with Campfire is that it's such a big community in that way, and like people are also doing such different things. Uh, and you know, it is a guiding academy, and you learn about guiding and stuff, but you can still do so much with that. You don't have to go into guiding if you don't want to. Uh, that's great if you do want to, but like, that's a great place to get started. People often ask me like, how do I get started if you, I want to work yeah, in the yeah. industry and stuff? Great place to start. Is I always say the course. same thing. Yeah, you go there, you meet different people and you get at least an understanding for what's going on. Absolutely. And it's definitely helped my photography. I'm sure it's knowing the sort of animal behavior and all the you know locations, habitats, it, it helps your photography as well. So. Absolutely, well that, I think so too. Like definitely, it's as you say, knowing all the like learning about the animals in general. That's like a key thing in wildlife photography, but also like getting connections into the industry. Like, can I step, you know, in the right direction of like, okay, this is how it kind of like works, and this is what happens, and this is what I can do, and then also the, get contacts and kind of be on the ground just to be in South Africa and be in that environment just helps to like yep. get somewhere. I've that noticed that when I'm, if I'm working throughout Africa as well, if you if you're on a vehicle and you've got a bit of knowledge, then it's also it creates like a more of a relationship with a guide. He's like, oh, this guy actually knows some stuff. He's not just here to be ignorant and arrogant and take pictures and just disappear. He, he actually cares about the environment and the animals, and he knows he knows a bit about what's going on. So it definitely helps building a relationship with your driver, which is also very helpful for getting into the right positions and all that stuff. Hundred percent, and kind of like knowing the right questions to ask like you're not gonna ask like okay what's the gestation period of a lion like you will yeah. ask like okay do you, like have you seen this lion before like what's usually the movement like mm -hmm. what is the like kind of personality is it relaxed or not like those kind of things yeah yeah exactly it helps i it's find normally the first thing i see is they're like if they get on even if it's on the radio they're like there's a lion my first question is what's it what's it doing yeah is it on the move? Is it worth trying to get there? And then once we're approaching, is this Aunt Dinova's line? Is it skittish? What's what's the story? Yeah, and That's they normally really good know. tips. That's really, really good tips, actually. We should dive deeper into that. Uh, <laughs> I just wanted to say as well, I find having a bit of guiding knowledge helps me a lot with my photographic guiding, like when I host guests and stuff, uh, that I'm also, as you say, like able to talk about the animals and help them like learn about the animals at the same time as also teaching about them about photography. Yeah, exactly. And also like the whole point of me being there often because sometimes people come and they like have no idea how to use their camera and I like help them with all the settings and everything. Uh, but some, most of the time people usually are a little bit more into photography already because they're going to Africa to take photos of wildlife. So they will usually know the basic settings and stuff. So what I more help them with is like, um, obviously composition ideas and all those kind of things, but also like, okay, these specific animals in Africa, like 
wild dogs for example they are crazy fast and they move quick like you need to be ready while a sleeping li sleeping mm -hmm. lion you can take it more easy like it's chilled <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and helping them with those like small tips of like okay you know what this line is it's, it seems like it's going to come out on the road again like be ready with your camera don't put it away just yet like all of those yeah, kind yeah. of things it's also i think part of a photographic guide is all about the creating the itinerary that suits the, the client especially Absolutely. when it comes to the timings of game drives you know you want to be out there way out you don't want to be sitting in camp having coffee when the sun's rising if you've got somebody who's into photography and somebody who's not and they're sitting wanting to be on game drive an hour ago and people are having muffins and yeah so that's 100%. i think your guide is there your guide is there to get people in and out of the bush at the right times of day as well absolutely and like also i on that note i hate the sundowners on game drive you yeah. know when like for those who don't know listening to the podcast like if you're on especially at the more luxury lodges and you go out on game drive in the in the mornings you usually stop for a coffee stop which is fine because that's usually later in the morning mm -hmm. so then the light is too harsh anyway but in the afternoons you usually stop for a sundowner like literally at sunset which is the best time to be out there for photography and if i'm just if we are guiding like normal guests or like i'm you know on sometimes we go on private trips or whatever site inspections and we like we don't really have any say on what we can do and not do um, and yeah. when we host photographic guests then we can be more specific about these kind of things but when we are just there and we can't we don't really have much of a say of what what times to do things i get so frustrated being at like the sundowner yeah. spot and it's pretty and it's great and everything but i'm like this is the best time to be out yeah, there photographing that's wildlife. not what your photographers are looking for no <laughs> no not at all not, not in the slightest luckily when i'm shooting normally i'm in a vehicle just me and a, and a driver or a guide so I, I can pretty much tailor the day as I, as I need to, which is pretty good for shooting. But That's yeah, it's luxury, very, very right? rare. We maybe have, we maybe stop for sundown or after sunset if, if we've been on a nice sighting. As soon as the light goes, I'm like, okay, it's, it's mm. too harsh now. I've already got some nice pictures with the best light. Let's move off and have a sundown and head back into camp. But, that's cool yeah. though but that's a luxury and i actually want to talk a little bit more about that uh, so we, we we're chatting away here but <laughs> to get into like the questions that that people have asked us and a little bit about like what we're going to talk about so um could you tell us a little bit more about because i think people know already kind of what i do um but can you tell a little bit more about what you do as a photographer like how is that your full-time job and like because it isn't just i'm a photographer and that's your that's your job can you tell a little bit more about that journey of how you got into it and uh, specifically like I know Time and Tide for example uh, you know has been a big part of that so if you could talk a little bit more about that yeah so like I mentioned before the, I sort of got the first safari bug like 10 years ago and that was during like a six-week overlanding trip in 2012 um, and after that I decided it was definitely somewhere I wanted to spend a lot more time was Africa. So that's when I came and did the Fagasa in 2015. So straight after Fagasa, I mean, I did the, the backup trails course as well. Tish managed to also persuade me to do that. She said it would be good for photography. And it was because of animal behaviour and all that stuff. Um, from there, I actually ended up going to, I don't know if most people from Campfire seem to end up at uh, Tremasana Lodge with uh, Viva yes. Safaris. <laughs> So uh, it's a I very ended good up place there. to start. <laughs> it was so good because, you know, also I was, I still am Scottish, but no visas or anything. And this guy was like, yeah, come and work. You know, you work for your food, accommodation, experience. And it's um, obviously I've moved on to more luxurious safaris since then, but it was such a cool place to be and learn and get some experience of guiding. Um, so I did that for like maybe six weeks. 
And then actually family friends back home had a friend, uh, their cousin was managing a, a camp up in Okavango Delta in Botswana. Uh, so I reached out to him and he was like, yeah, man, come. So I ended up going straight from South Africa into the Okavango Delta and doing three months there doing, uh, so it was, it was actually a horseback safari place and I don't ride horses. I don't really do to horses at all. But so the guests would normally ride in the mornings before it got too hot and in the afternoons they would do like, um, you know, like Makoros, which is like the dugout canoes. They would do Makoro trips or bushwalks or game drives. So I was more involved in, in that part of the afternoons and then obviously hosting guests and making sure they had a good time. So I was doing that and I was getting more and more into photography, but it was definitely just a little sort of hobby that I had. Um, and then I was, I was coming to the end of my three month visa in Botswana and I was emailing as many lodges as I could. I was like, can I come and I'll just guide for food accommodation, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I think I sent 30 emails one day and one wow. person got back and that was um, Norman Car Safaris, which was in Zambia. And for some reason, I'd always felt Zambia was going to be a perfect mix of the wild and some civilization. I always kind of felt it was going to be such a cool place. So it was Norman Carr says, hey, we only employ local guides, but you can come take pictures for like three weeks and we'll host you. Um, and then about a week before I was due to go there, there was actually a fire in the camp where I was living and I lost all my stuff apart from my laptop no. and my camera. <gasps> oh my yeah. word. So, yeah, so that was a bit unfortunate. Like, so I had to borrow my friend's clothes in camp. I had, well, my passport was gone. Everything was lost. Even all my all my guiding logbooks from bushwalks, you know how you record your hours and you record all that stuff. Oh my word, that is so yeah. bad. So I lost oh. all that stuff. Um, I managed to get a bus to the capital city and I got an emergency passport and headed back to to Scotland and I messaged the place where I was supposed to go in Zambia and uh, Norman Car Safari. I was like, this has happened. Um, and they're like, yeah, we'll keep it open for next year. And they thought they would never hear from me again. But... I went home, sorted my life out, and then I was instantly messaging them. I was like, when can I come? When? So they were like, okay, you can come out 2016 to do, like they said, come out and do the, the three weeks you were supposed to do. I went out there and did that, and then they were like, listen, we're transforming from Norman Car Safaris into Time and Tide um, Africa, the bigger company. So they invited me back in 2017 for three months to do all the three regions where they work in Zambia. And then they said, okay, we've also got this new property in Madagascar, so we want to send you there. So that was into wow. month four. And then they says, okay, we want to send you to Cape Town to do the editing for three months. And then I just never, I never left from there. Wow, that's So, so that was kind of, yeah, so it was just, you know, that one email that I got a reply to. It's like, you definitely have to, I had to put myself in the right place in front of the right people. But it was mm. definitely, yeah, it's just tough to put yourself out there, I suppose. But it's amazing because it shows exactly like you say, I think I always say this to people, I'm like, you know, it doesn't come easy. You can't just like apply for one job, yeah, yeah. but it's about putting yourself in the right position at the right time and be prepared for, for that and for those opportunities. Yeah, exactly. And then, as you say, keep on reaching out, keep on reaching out, sending 30 emails a day to just whatever yeah. lodges. Do whatever you can. Do it for free in the beginning uh, to build that portfolio and build that trust and yeah. to prove yourself and work hard for it. And eventually, you know, hopefully that will then stimulate into something bigger. Exactly. It's definitely, it, it's, it's people often say, how did you do what you do? And then you, 
you tell them and then he's like sometimes they get no reply and it's like there must be like oh that sounds like hard work or that's or oh, it took yeah. you four five six years <laughs> you can see the interest seems to go it doesn't happen overnight that's the and thing, I, did, like, I, I still didn't know when I did that I didn't know where I was I didn't even have an end goal in sight I was just like oh let's go and see what I can achieve sort of see thing. what happens but see, that's, that's a funny thing as well, because I get the same question all the time. I think that's why this podcast is quite great to, to chat about. People are like, okay, so how do I become a wildlife photographer? I'm like, yeah, but you, you don't just become one. Like you don't go mm. to school or to university and be like, okay, I'm going to study to become a wildlife photographer or, or photographer in general, or content creator or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, all of these kind of things. You, it's not like, okay, I'm studying to be an engineer or I'm studying to be a doctor or whatever. It doesn't work that way. Um, you definitely can study the like technical sides of things. You can study to like learn the art of photography, all of that. And I think it's great to put time into investing into that. But you also need to learn how to like create a business around it or put yourself in the positions where you can maybe be employed yeah. as a photographer. Like that's, and that is so difficult to do because there's no like one road to do this. Everybody, all the photographers that I know have done this in very different ways. Completely differently, yeah. Exactly. And it's just about so finding would, your path. Yeah, like time and time would say, because obviously you were saying the type of photography I do. So I don't just do, I'm not so much, you're just a wildlife photographer. I'll do all the content creation through, you know, all the lodge photography, interiors, exteriors, activities. As well as that, I'll do all the all the videography as well. So mm, yes, I'll make short promotional videos and all that sort of stuff as well. That's also a really good point to tell people that it's not just about like, okay, I can take really good photos of wildlife. Usually, you are, it's very difficult to make a living of only taking photos of wildlife. Yeah, yeah. You might have to do a lot of other types of photography or other things. Or videography is a really good example. That's definitely something I think is important to get more and more into because that's growing a lot. Um, but you know those kind of things you need to learn to do the whole spectrum uh, not not like okay I need to be able to do wedding photography and this and this and this yeah, yeah. you know choose your niches but but still you, you can't only focus on wildlife and think that you'll be employed yeah, yeah. By, by someone to only do wildlife I was more like really everything I was more like everything that somebody might need done at a lodge I want to be able to do all that type of photography and videography is, is that that's sort of where the route I went down and that's a great that's also shows again how good it was for you to start you know as with the guiding uh, course and then working at a lodge you know mm -hmm. getting that experience of how does the how does this operation actually run like how are we uh, doing this and what is the actual needs from these lodges because i find a lot of people will you know, they think they can come here and just go in and they can just take photos of wildlife and they're going to be great. You need to know a little bit more about what happens behind mm -hmm. the scenes. What is the actual whole operation and what do they actually need to yep. be able to give them that need? You know what I mean? I think you also, it's helpful if you're, if you're somebody that people want to work with and are easy to work with as well. You know, you go Absolutely. in there, you have to go back a house, mingle with the staff, you know, be part of a team sort of thing. Um, and show show a good worth it, uh, work ethic as well. It's one of the things I was told is that they could see how hard I wanted to work. So it was Absolutely. definitely one of the big things that led to me becoming full time. That's a really good point. Yeah, work ethic and like because I think if you come in as a photographer, people can very quickly be like, oh, "But what you're doing is so easy. Like you just 
snapping away yeah. on you know it's just pressing a shutter like what are you actually working for and who are you here especially as you, if you're coming in as like a freelance photographer and as you say being like connecting with the staff and like being part of the stuff and maybe even helping out when you have like in between shoots and stuff like when the light isn't great and you can't do much anyway yeah maybe help out where you can and see like hey like at the front office is there anything i can help with today like do you guys need me to do anything like i'm happy to help and i think that will go a long way um with the people at the lodge to, exactly. to see that you are you're willing to work and you're willing to help where, where it's especially with time and tide because i was became an employee i would if we were doing special sundown or photo shoots when i would obviously help if i was set up i'd get the guys like okay let's load the truck let's get everything ready and mm. sort of get in there and um you, i've definitely had some people being like oh you're not like we expected most photographers who have come through in the past have been super bossy and just annoyed us so <laughs> it's, there's, there's definitely a way of getting things done by being a sort of nice person and helpful person i think no, that's a that's a really good point. Um, so yeah, we're chatting a little bit because like, we've already now chatting a little bit about like, okay, how do we, you know, become a wildlife photographer? And I think we've kind of answered that question now because that's the question we get a lot. Is uh, you know, there's different ways of doing it. Um, you know, you you have to kind of create your own path. Just to throw it in there because you worked for Time and Tide full time and that's how you like started and then now I know that you've gone full time freelance and you're going to start doing that um, but you also do very as you say quite different photography from me from for example like you do a lot of like lodge shoots and stuff I do that from time to time but that's not really my main uh, main thing and um, what I do a lot just to give people an example of how it can be very different depending on on photographers what I do more is obviously we run our company uh, Wildest Kruger Safaris and through that we run workshops where I teach photography and like that's kind of the route that I've gone more because I love teaching that I'm teaching people photography and I'm hosting them in um, in South Africa specifically uh, right now and then we are exploring more places but um teaching them photography and uh, hosting them and guiding them around Kruger Park, for example. Uh, so that's a different way of doing it, just for those who are, are looking at different options of how do I, okay, how can I make money off this passion of mine of mm -hmm. wildlife photography? There is different ways of doing it. Uh, teaching is definitely one part of it as well. And then obviously we get into things like selling prints. I don't know, do you, do you have a website where you sell your prints? Yeah, I do have one. I do. I mean, it's not something I would rely on for income. It's more like a, a little bonus every now and then if you sell a print. It's not. It's a very difficult thing to to make money on just solely, if you know what I mean. But it's, it's an option for a little. It's it's about having all these little bits of passive income. So if you get little things that accumulate over time. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I was gonna say that too. Like you know, I also have my my print shop, and as you say, it's not something that I'm relying on full-time for my print shop uh, to sell prints because it's such a it, it, it's such an un, what do you call it like unreliable income uh, that it just comes every now and then and that's great because uh, I think people think that that is the way to go and I think it's a really good place to start uh, because it's something that you can build and then as you say it can be passive while you're still maybe at a full-time job or something um, but then going full-time that's that shouldn't be the only thing that you're relying on uh, you should need to have a few more streams of income yeah. more reliable streams of income I would say so for sure Another a good and thing about where you're saying about getting like how to get into it is like there definitely is obviously you need to have ability and some some skill and a good eye. But I always think that the harder I've worked, the luckier I've become. So like you know if you're willing to put the work in, then the luckier you'll get and you'll get in front of the right people as well. 
Absolutely. I think there's a saying that goes, uh, you know, it's not luck. It's about being, it's about being prepared when the opportunity comes. Um, I don't know if that's the exact saying, but <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. But anyway, and I think that's really good because as you say, like you work really hard, you prepare yourself, you put yourself in the right position. Uh, and, and then when that opportunity comes ar around, you are ready for it. And, you know, if you, let's say six months earlier would have gotten the same opportunity and you hadn't put all that work in, mm -hmm. you're not going to do it as well. You're not going to have the same work ethic or whatever it might be, or like be able to ex execute the project I'm just talking about like a hypothetical project now, mm -hmm. as well as you did at this point because you have prepared yourself so much. So I feel like people get stuck in this whole lucky mindset and they say, oh, you're so lucky to do this, you're so lucky. Yes, absolutely, I'm, I'm grateful and I'm lucky for the like where I am in my life and the life I've created for myself 100% and I'm so grateful for that. But I wouldn't call it luck because I've worked very hard for the opportunities that have come yeah, around and I exactly. think you feel the same way. Yeah, pretty much. Even same with landscape photography. I can go out for this beautiful sunrise, and my friends are like, "Oh, you're so lucky." And I'm like, "Yeah, but I did it for the last month, and this is the first time it worked out." You know, so exactly. you only see see the beautiful sunrise, but we don't see all the rainy, windy days in Scotland trying to capture this this same scene. They see the one that I got right, and they're like, "You're lucky," and I'm like, eh, "I don't know." <laughs> no, exactly. That's the thing. You, people focus on that one time when it worked out and they're like, oh, you're so lucky. No, no, I worked, I was here yeah. 50 times before this, that which I haven't posted on social media, for example, yeah, yeah. or whatever. But actually another talk about, uh, when we talk about like income and all those kind of things for those who are interested in like how to get into wildlife photography, I know that you are also really good on YouTube. Like your YouTube videos are flipping amazing. And, uh, you know, is that also like a form of, of um, streams of income or is it something that you, is just a passion project or is it something that you're looking at creating into um, a source of income? It's never, so YouTube's never been something I've looked at to make money on. Like, I quite like my videos. I think they're decent, but my f subscribers are pretty low and the views aren't very great. It's, it's a very, it's a, it's a V platform where the most work goes into and you get the littlest, like the smallest reward you can, you know, you can make a reel for Instagram. It can take you five, 10 minutes. Yeah. And it gets like a hundred thousand views, a million views, whatever. You can spend four or five solid days making a, a nice sort of polished video for YouTube. And after a week, it's like four or 500 views. So like the, the reward isn't as good, but I love the process of making videos and doing behind the scenes vlogs and all that stuff. So. I'll keep going away at it and you never know, it might just be something that one day takes off. Um, but it's not something I do for, for money. I know you can monetize your videos and start making some income from there, but I've not, not uh, explored that avenue yet. Okay, cool. But uh, yeah, it's it, as you say, I, I completely agree. I have done a little bit of YouTube myself, but like, yeah, not a lot. And as you say, it takes <laughs> a lot of time editing these videos and like creating these videos. And it's a very like slow process because it's, yeah, as you say, you're not gonna hit like a million views on your first video, uh, but on on like a reel, a thirty second reel can hit and you get crazy yeah. views. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to mention that because I do know that that can be an option as well. But as you say, it does take a lot of work to to get into it to get to that point of monetizing yeah, and all of that. I yeah. think so. Yeah. Uh, okay, should we head head into some of the questions mm -hmm. uh, that people have um, sent in on Instagram? Yep. Let me see. Uh, I think a one very good thing, a very good question to start with is, and I'm gonna, okay, so the question is from Wayne Alfreds. Uh, 
No, Wayne Alfred. Sorry, that was <laughs> very bad pronunciation. <laughs> Wayne Alfred. <laughs> okay, it's my second language. We don't have any Waynes in Sweden. <laughs> so I'm um, what camera did you all start with in the beginning and how was it like when you started wildlife photography? So I'm thinking I'm just going to add in here as well, uh, maybe what camera we shoot with now. Um, but okay. let's start with what camera you started with. So when I came out to do the guiding with um, Campfire, I think at the time I had an Olympus. It was an Olympus OMD EM1, such a hard name to remember or say. But yeah, it was an Olympus OMD EM1 with like a 100 to 400 lens. And it was, I remember, you know, uh, Frankie, who was at Campfire. Yes, he yes. was super, he had his, they all had their Canon Mark, whatever it is, Canon R, yeah. uh, Canon 4 Mark, blah, 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 whatever it is. <laughs> they all had these guys and I, I rocked up with this little Olympus and they couldn't believe uh, how good this little camera was. So Olympus that was is my really first good one. from what I've heard. Now they yeah, call it, it OM was, Systems for those who yeah, yeah. are, are And it was like a, yeah. a micro four thirds thing. So it was, and it was super fast. It was probably only about 10 frames a second, but that was fast for me back then. And it was, I was like, yeah. and Frank was like, what are you using here? <laughs> uh, so awesome. that was the one I used. That was my first one when I started to do wildlife photography. Before that, when I was first moving around, I think I had an old Canon 50D or something, super old, 100D or something. Mm. Like a super, I bought a basic one, Canon with a little kit lens, and that was what I was originally using for photography. Uh, and now I've slowly progressed. I went from there to the, the first sort of what I would have called my professional camera when I wanted to t t take it more seriously was the Sony A9. And then from there I went on to the Sony A1, which is what I'm shooting with now. Awesome. A very nice camera, by the way. I've just been trying it <laughs> out for a couple of weeks and wow, it's that's a flipping cool camera. Um, okay, cool. Yeah, so you've like literally moved through yeah three of the biggest <laughs> camera <laughs> manufacturers out there. I've never I've never used the Nikon, but I've tried tried Canon, yeah, tried Olympus, and settled on Sony. I was just about to say like yeah, I've always had Nikon, and uh, I started with I think it was it's called a D, I think it was a D three thousand when I started, and then later on I had a. D3500, which was like the newer model of that. And mm. I think it's kind of still like the most entry-level camera Nikon has, uh, or one of them. But that's what I started with when I was 15. That was my first camera. And then when I then started doing wildlife, or when I came to South Africa for the first time, I actually borrowed my dad's uh, telephoto lens. He had a I think it was a 70 to 200 or something like that um, that he had that I borrowed because I was going to Africa and I was going to take photos of wildlife. So like, <laughs> I had to get a telephoto lens. Um, and that's when like the passion for photography, wildlife photography started. And then I think I, like a year later or something, I got my own telephoto lens that was a fa um, 70 to 300. And I have had that for quite a while uh, until that camera broke. Yeah, and that's when I started, that's when I was like, okay, let me invest in something better. But I was still balling on a budget, so I bought secondhand stuff. Uh, and that's when I got my current camera. Uh, that's a, a Nikon D800. And then with lenses and stuff, I've definitely invested more in lenses and like upgraded more in, in lenses mm -hmm. and stuff. And right now I'm at a point where I'm like, okay, it's time to get a like proper mirrorless camera and investing in all that so i'm in that process now so but i'll 
leave that for <laughs> a little cliffhanger for another day of what I'm actually <laughs> ending up with. But, uh, and then I, so anyway, I upgraded my, my lenses and stuff and I have had a 300 2.8 uh, for quite a while now. That is an amazing lens. Um, yeah. So yeah, so that's what I started with and what I've got now. But again, it's and a it's a process as well. You know, you don't, unless you've got some good savings, you don't go in there and own the best camera straight away. It's similar to getting into photography. You sort of work your way up through through the stages. Exactly, and I think that's maybe a good like follow up question. Is like, okay, what camera would you recommend for someone starting out? That's another question I get quite a lot of. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm actually I'm pretty. When it comes to all the different gear out there, I'm actually pretty pretty useless. I, I focus on working the camera that I own, and then I don't really pay too much attention to what else is going on. Um, I was always told that you should get the the most expensive camera that you can comfortably afford as your as a camera. Was you know, don't go, especially if you're getting into it. Don't go and buy the best thing and then find out in three months' time you don't enjoy it. What if, if it's a like good, a, 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 a sort of price range that you can? You can afford to get and it's not gonna kill you then go in for that and then you can even get a body and then if you wanted to you could maybe if you're going for a, a safari maybe hire a lens for two three weeks you know if you don't want if you're not going to be shooting wildlife all the time it's a good option to to just hire a lens so that you can use it and then give it back and then maybe hire again in a year's time when you go on another safari so yeah it's definitely i mean i would obviously advise sony but <laughs> um, Sony, Nikon, Canon, we're all going to have good cameras and it just depends how far you want to go with your photography but what you can afford comfortably is a good place to start. That's a really good way of putting it uh, because like at the end of the day people are like oh what's the best camera and I'm like okay the like R, I think it's R6 now, no mm -hmm. R3 is the Canon like top top camera like R3, A1 and Z9, there you go, that's the best cameras. Like, <laughs> but people are not gonna buy that as their first cameras, but there is a reason those cameras are so expensive and they are yep. flagship cameras. So like, yes, they're gonna be the ones I would recommend if you're just asking me what's the best camera out there. I'm like, yeah, the top cameras from the cam ca big camera mm -hmm. companies, like that's, that's the simple answer. But as you say, like, going into it, you're not gonna buy that the first thing. So buy something that is, that you can comfortably afford because it all comes it all comes down to budget yeah uh, but also i think it isn't about like it isn't about the gear when you're starting out uh, it is about learning your camera like you say you focus more on learning your equipment and handling your camera the best you can mm -hmm. uh, than looking at what other what what else is out there and i think that's a really really good advice to give it's it's more about learning your equipment and then i find that um once you get to a point where your photography skills are like over what do you call it like they're matching and they're above what yeah. your camera can provide so like you know that you could get this and this shot and like or this and this mm -hmm. is something that you want to do and you know your your skills can get that but the equipment that you have is limiting you that's yep. when you start looking at at upgrading and looking yeah, I at think, and you, what's you the only, next step. You only figure out what those limitations are once you've learned how to work like a less range, say a lower range camera. As soon as you know how to work that thing inside out, then you know, ah, oh, but it's stopping me from achieving this, this and this. So then you find out which camera will help me get this, this and this. And then you maybe sell this, then upgrade to the next one. Exactly, exactly. 
Uh, so that's a really good answer. Um, okay, let's see. Next question. Um, what's the one thing you know now about wildlife photography that you wish you knew when you started out? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I need to think about that one. I knew, like, what would you think would be the one thing? Like, I knew I had to be patient. I knew it was difficult. Like when I just started <laughs> out, I'm thinking like very far back. And <laughs> to be fair, I've written a whole ebook on all the things that I wish I knew when I yeah, started exactly. out. Okay, one one thing that I wish I had realized earlier, uh, like when I just started out. And I, I find that a lot of, like when I teach photography and stuff, a lot of uh, people do the same mistake. And that is people are so scared of ISO. And they are so scared of the noise and grain. And they end up, and they're so scared of that, that they end up choosing a slower shutter speed, uh, which then makes your photo blurry and you have pretty much an unusable photo. Or they're like, oh, as soon as it starts getting too dark, they're like, oh, I can't take photos anymore. And, uh, and obviously we all eventually does get too dark for all of us. But yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's the one thing I wish I knew when starting out that like, don't <coughs> be, like ISO is not the one to be scared about. Like blurry photos is the one to be scared about. We can do something about ISO. Um, especially now, like we've spoken about, uh, I know you also use Topaz Labs and I've spoken about Topaz Labs before. That's what I use for my denoise uh, mm -hmm. thing. It's really good um, uh, software that um, takes all the noise and grain away in a photo with a high ISO. You're obviously still never gonna compete with a low ISO photo. You know, that's always gonna be the best quality, but you're still, you're getting very close and you really uh, making a difference. But now even like, even more so that you shouldn't be scared of ISO because now uh, Lightroom has just come out with an update where they do um, noise reduction and yeah, it's really, really good. It's really close to the Topaz. I would still yeah. say Topaz is better, but it's really close. Exactly. So yeah, thinking about that, one of the things, probably something I wish I knew at the start was uh, I used to not shoot in full manual mode and for that reason I was probably doing, I was protecting my, my ISO I think. Whereas now I just, you know, I'll um, use the shutter speed. And I don't really worry too much about what my ISO is doing. The most important thing is to get the sharp shots. So I think at the very start of photography, I was shooting on um, aperture mode. So I was just keeping my aperture as low as possible. And then I was shooting, but the camera doesn't know how fast or what the thing's doing in front of the camera. It doesn't know if your subject's sitting still or if your subject's moving. So it selects a shutter speed that it thinks is correct. Mm. Whereas your animal might move and it's blurry. Whereas if you have got your shutter speed under control, and then that's where I've noticed that I'm getting way more sharper shots. There were mm. some nice shots. I think even on the first couple of days when I arrived at campfire, that I took with my camera, thinking I'd got some good ones. But I looked and it was quite low light, and the lion cubs were super soft when I looked in because my shutter speed was was too too low. So I think mm. if anything, shutter speed's what I prioritise when I'm doing photography now, whereas I used to do ISO. And then also shooting low down is a big thing that I, I sort of oh, knew yeah. it was important when I started photography. I knew how nice it was. And it's also a luxurious situation to be in to get your camera right down next to the ground. It's not something you're mm. always going to be able to do. But yeah, whenever I can, my camera is down in the grass now. Just the lower the angle, the more engaging sort of a shot. So. 
Absolutely, that's a really that's a really good one. I would say about the aperture priority though. Yeah, I think like I 100% agree with you. I think it depends on like the way you like prefer shooting though. I've because I shoot on aperture priority, and I find that works better with the camera that I shoot with now. Um, and then I just always make sure I have my eyes so high enough for the to cover speed the to shot. be high enough, yeah, yeah. kind of thing. Um, but funny, funnily enough, when I was shooting with a Sony gear now recently, I actually switched to manual and went out to ISO and I thought that actually worked better for that gear like for those cameras so I think like it kind of depends um yeah I mean that's probably probably when I switched to shooting that way was when I got the Sony A9 so because mm. they also do handle ISO really nicely so yeah yeah don't have to worry about it too much there but I think mm. in general like not stressing about ISO is like yeah definitely was a changer when I realized I was like oh wait I can push push my ISO up here. It's mm -hmm. fine. Like it's gonna be fine. Yeah. Uh, but talking about ISO, uh, I've got another question here about ISO um, in the Arctic. So uh, I can't pronounce this <laughs> this username. Oh yeah, that was the question. Mimi Mimi Fifi, I think twenty one. <laughs> <laughs> looks like um, it's right. Yeah. Uh, she's asking. I'm actually going to the Arctic soon. Do you re recommend? ISO as close to 100 as possible when shooting ice, etc. And I don't have much experience with shooting like icy landscape and stuff, so that would be awesome for to hear your input. Yeah, I mean, what, 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 it doesn't matter what photography I'm doing, I'm always looking to have my ISO as low as I can possibly have it anyway. Uh, but when I was lucky enough to shoot, like obviously last year, was and this year also, I was shooting out in Antarctica. Uh, and because it's so bright there, I noticed that my shutter speed could be super, super fast. And I looked in the ISO, it's like 100, 200. Oh, so wow. um, because it doesn't really get, it, well, when I was there, it doesn't get dark, the sun doesn't set. So you're not really dealing with super low light uh, situations when I was shooting the, the penguins, the emperor penguins. So it wasn't really something I ever even looked at was my ISO when I was there, because it was always so low because there's so much, there's so much light anyway. But definitely you want you always want to have your ISO as low as you possibly can anyway. Mm. And would you say there's any like specific like tricks to shooting eyes? Do you like overexpose, do you underexpose, or is there anything and is it also brighter because like the snow and ice reflects, you know, white and stuff? Yeah, like exactly, can that yeah. kind of mix with how the camera picks up the scene? Is there any advice there? Um, so I've always been told, I'm sure you have, you're supposed to overexpose because um, the camera registers the white and it tries to underexpose and stuff. But I think with, especially with the, the camera I'm using, you've got so much like freedom when you're doing the editing anyway. I'm always just making sure, I'll, I'll definitely check my histogram just to make sure I'm not clipping all the highlights because of the bright, bright conditions. Mm. Uh, especially with the penguins, with the, the white feathers against the black feathers. I was always just making sure that I hadn't blown out the detail in, in, in the feathers and the white areas. Uh, but yeah, I didn't really, it wasn't something I was on my mind too much now. Okay, cool. Interesting. I would yeah, definitely, I, I would rather, I would rather, I would rather slightly underexpose and save my highlights and then increase my shadows when I'm doing editing. And I actually also do that because it's interesting, like, um, because you mentioned there how like I know I've heard also like other photographers say like you should rather overexpose slightly and you know because apparently you hide less noise in the highlights and you know then mm -hmm. you'll get a cleaner shot and so on but I feel like in, in wildlife photography we so often have to push our ISO anyway that like yeah. 
then is there really any point of like me overexposing my photo and then I have to push my ISO and then, you know. So I also prefer underexposing most of the time because I find I can bring more details out of the shadows than I can yeah. bring details back exactly. from, the, from the highlights. So I, I also do that. And when yeah, you're, you're shooting thinking, mostly, you know, the wildlife shots, when it's when it's if it's safari, you know, and you've got those kind of golden hour shots, you don't you don't want you're not looking for a bright exposed shot anyway. You want it to be sort of a little bit darker and moody, perhaps. Exactly, exactly. And um, do you find what was it I was gonna say? Oh yeah, so I was uh, interesting with with like when it's so bright and so light, and you shoot on manual and you've got the out out um, auto ISO. Do you ever find that uh, if you've put like your shutter speed to s too slow, that uh, the camera had like overexposed to the photo because they literally can't it can't push the ISO yeah. lower? Yeah. Um. And would you say like is there what kind of like shutter speeds are you are you shooting on in like bright daylight? Yeah. So when I was shooting, I'd be I was shooting on my two hundred to six hundred, so I was probably at f five point six unless I had the teleconverter on. Mm. And then I'm sure, yeah, I probably had it cranked up even shutter speed was maybe one 250th, you know, like, uh, sorry, 1,250 of a second, even higher, 2,000 of a second. I would, that's the main, how I mainly adjusted the exposure on the, on the images. Because if you, mm. if you go too low, then I was looking and it was just completely overexposing. Yeah, because then the, the camera can't compensate with a low enough. Yeah, eye, so. it's it's going as low as it possibly can. It's trying to stop as much exactly. light coming in as it can. So yeah. I could either increase the aperture a little bit, but I normally just increased the shutter speed a bit. Mm. Just to, I mean, I would watch on the screen. It was super hard to see the screen as well because of the bright. It's everything's so bright, but it's very hard mm. to see the LCD screen. So I would probably have to look through the actual viewfinder just yeah. to check the images. And I'm like, no, these are overexposed. So I'll just increase my shutter speed so there's less light coming in. Okay, cool. Yeah, because yeah. I find that it sometimes happens like early afternoon when it's still super bright that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and and that's where I find shooting an aperture priority works better um, because then like the shutter speed can go higher to get like a good enough exposure and you can keep yeah. your eyes on like 100, 200 and the shutter speed will just go to whatever. Um, while like if you shoot on a shutter speed or a manual without ISO, mm -hmm. then it very easily can like the sh ISO can't go low, low enough. But then I think like as soon as it starts getting darker and you have to put your ISO up anyway, then you might then it's better to shoot yeah, the manual yeah. and have like an auto. Yeah, there's nothing ISO. wrong with nothing wrong with switching between the two. Exactly. It was what was tricky what's tricky you might find with like in Antarctica was going from photographs to, to video. Okay. Because I, because you know for photography I would just increase my shutter speed to to let, get the exposure less, but I can't do that in video because I'm trying to keep my shutter speed as twice what the frame rate is. So mm. I would have to increase the aperture when I was doing when I was doing it for video. So actually, because you are really good at video and you've taught me a bit, like exactly what you just <laughs> mentioned about keeping the shutter speed double the no wait shutter speed double the frame rate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm I like enjoy video, but I only do it for like social media for my own stuff and mm -hmm. uh, don't do it professionally at all. So I, I don't call myself a videographer whatsoever. Um, and you taught me that. So could you talk a little bit more more about like videography and kind of tips on on like that rule, for example, explaining that a little bit more for the listeners who are interested yeah. in videography and how to get into that. Yeah, 
So it can be difficult to to explain. It can just sound like a, a lot of numbers unless you see like a graph written <laughs> down or something. But mostly when I'm doing, especially when I'm doing wildlife, uh, most of the stuff I do, I end up doing in slow motion when I'm making videos, mainly because if you're holding a zoom lens, it's very difficult to get super smooth footage. So if you can get two or three seconds, which are smooth and then slow it down, it always looks pretty cool. Um, so normally if I'm doing that on the Sony, I'll be shooting at 100 frames a second. So what that means is that you want each of those 100 frames to be 200 of a second. So it's 100 frames a second, so I want each one of those frames to be 200, which is double the, the frame rate that I'm shooting at. So if you're shooting at 24 frames a second, which is like a more sort of cinematic, like what you would shoot Hollywood, then you're going to shoot at a 50th of a second for, okay. for those frame rates. And it's all about creating the right amount of motion blur in, in each frame so that your video doesn't stitch together looking jaggy and choppy. Because I've noticed that after you told me about that trick, I realized like with some of my videos that I try to slow down to slow-mo, like for reels and stuff, yeah. I was like, oh, it looks so weird. It doesn't look as smooth and nice. And yeah. I realized it was because the frame rate was wrong and the shutter speed was wrong uh, that yeah. it, the right motion blur doesn't happen. So that's the reason yeah. that you want Exactly. Yeah, so if you numbers. want to do slow motion, you want to you want to shoot in as high a frame rate as possible so that there's more frames to slow down. Okay. okay. If you're if you're trying to take like if you're trying to take a one second video clip and you want mm -hmm. to make it into a three second video clip, it's gonna be much smoother if there's a hundred frames in that one second to stretch out. Whereas mm. if there's only twenty four frames in that one second of clip, as soon as you start to stretch them and it starts to get choppy and jumpy. Because mm. there's no there's no data to fill in those little gaps. And is that like a specific, so is there like a specific ratio there as well of like how much, like what percentage you can slow the footage down depending on like, what, uh, yeah. like if I'm shooting 50 frames per second, uh, like how much can I slow it down compared to 100 there frames, is, for example? There is, but then that, that also goes into what your timeline on your editing, it can depend what frame rate you've got that set, set to. Uh, normally if I'm doing, normally if I'm shooting 100 frames a second in like a 30 frame um, timeline and it slows it down to like 30 percent so it would slow it gets pretty slow okay but, but there probably is more of a technical answer to that but it's not i just the way i work i just pop it in there and then on, on editing i can just do automatic speed and it'll slow it down to what it said is the smoothest for me normally okay, around cool, cool. normally around 30 percent of the of the original speed okay awesome okay yeah so that's a little bit of videography <laughs> there for those who are interested uh, but i think that definitely this is where we're getting into like the technical stuff. This is what Craig Yeah, really that can frazzle the brain. Was that one. <laughs> too much fun. Um, okay, let me see. Quick one. Uh, are you single? <laughs> no. <laughs> and I know who sent that question in as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> that definitely um, came from uh, my girlfriend, Sarah, for sure. Yeah, she just had to make sure everybody knows. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so another one from Sarah. Um, what are your views on WhatsApp groups for sightings? So that's probably so, more going to be something you'll be able to answer more because it's not something I've got experience with. I know it's something that you guys use in Kruger, so I'll mm -hmm. let you go first on that one. Okay, sure. Yeah, so um, yes, for those who don't know, like for WhatsApp groups, um, especially in like the Kruger National Park itself, uh, where there's like kind of like a self-drive. We've spoken about that before. So for those who don't know, when I talk about Kruger National Park itself and the private reserves, those who don't know the difference, go back and, and look at the previous episodes because then we talk about the difference there. But um, 
then there's often like guide groups uh, or it can be like sometimes there's big WhatsApp groups. There's one called Latest Sightings that now has become an app where people literally like they say, okay, here I saw a lion at this road. It's doing this and this and then letting everybody else know what's going on uh, so that other people can like find the sightings as well. In the private reserves, it's more like radio contact, contact. So like all vehicles will have a radio and then they will radio each other and say, okay, I found a leopard here and whatever. And then it's also much more controlled. So in those radio contact, there's like, okay, we can only be two vehicles at per sighting usually. Uh, some reserves do three, but it's usually like two vehicles per sighting. Uh, unless it's like a skittish animal, then it will be one vehicle per sighting. And then you literally have like a queue or a lineup as it's, as it's called and you take like a standby so you take a standby one standby two and then you know that okay i am the next one that is allowed to go there like in like 20 minutes or something so it's very much mm -hmm. more controlled in the reserves and i think there it's great like the way it works with the radio i think that works well and it's often very controlled and it's very respectful of the animals and it also gives everybody a chance to see the animals and because that's why the guests are there and um, I think in Kruger, it can get a little bit hectic with the WhatsApp groups. Like we will notice sometimes like we'll come to a sighting. We had a sighting of a leopard in, the, in a tree the other day with a client in Kruger. And we arrived, I think we arrived just as they had like spotted the leopard because there was two uh, open safari vehicles there. And then literally like five minutes later, there's like 20 vehicles. Mm -hmm. So everyone is there. Uh, luckily, like in Kruger, the, the leopards or the cats in general are quite chilled because they know that the cars are on the road and they like that's the reality and then you're not allowed to off-road so you can't go chasing after the leopard in there so if the leopard it feels uncomfortable with the cars it can very easily just move 50 meters into the bush and then it's fine so uh, like the leopard was very chilled it was in the tree all didn't seem bothered at all but it does become a little bit hectic at the sighting and they're you know people get annoyed with each other so like i don't think it bothers the animal too much i think they are fine um but people get annoyed with each other and stuff so that can cause a little bit of like friction a little bit of irritation um so i think like there is good things with them because i think it's great for people to be able to like help each other to find animals uh, but it also gets super hectic at sightings sometimes especially like a busy weekend in kruger uh, it's just way too many cars and it doesn't become an enjoyable experience for every for anyone um so like i have a little bit of mixed feelings there between for the whatsapp groups and the yeah i don't know what's what's your thoughts um so but yeah the normally i don't i think it can maybe take away a bit of a magic as well of driving around mm. in the hope of finding things and looking for them and instead of just relying on somebody to tell you what we've seen on an app um it's always it is when i'm in zambia it's it is quite exciting when the radio goes and you're like oh what's he saying you know because you <laughs> so that that's quite exciting but again it's controlled like your like the reserves you say you work in around there as well um yeah it's it's difficult to say that people should or shouldn't do it but it's kind of each to their own, I suppose. If you don't want it, then you just don't use the app. It's it's quite simple, but yeah, I think yeah. from as far as I have noticed, it doesn't bother the animals too much, especially when there's no off-roading. If there's off-roading, then it can bother them because they can, they can't get away. You yeah, know exactly. Mean? But when it's just on roads, then they can get away from the roads if they want to. I know of situations where there've been like lions on a kill uh, on the road where the rangers have literally had to 
like either stand there and like control the fra- the traffic obviously in a car but <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> control the traffic and like tell people okay you can come now five minutes and then you have to go and like control it that way uh, but also that it's happened that the rangers have had to like drag the draft further into the bush so that's like not oh, on really? the road yeah uh, so that also does happen and then obviously it's kind of like affecting the the animals and stuff but i think that could also happen even if it wasn't a whatsapp group that there was too there would be too many yeah. cars yeah uh, because people just come up come past you know there on that road anyway uh, yeah, but very true. good question yeah uh, let me see next question we have been going on for a little bit but if you <laughs> keen to keep going i think there's a lot of good yeah, questions yeah, good. and then it'll be a longer one um I think this is a really good question. So uh, there's one question that is how competitive is the industry? And then there's another question that is quite similar that I think is really good to touch on. Where was it? Um, oh, is the industry not oversaturated with con- uh, content creators trying to make cash from photo? Yeah, so that together with is the industry competitive or how competitive is the industry? Yeah, it's probably a pretty a pretty good question. Um, luckily, you know, obviously, with me going straight into sort of a full time role with Time and Tide, um, that's where I've sort of built up my portfolio and, if you want to call it, like reputation. So I think I'm quite lucky in that sense where I wasn't from the very start. I wasn't looking for work everywhere and competing with people. Every now and then, Time and Tide would get you know emails through saying, "Hey, we're looking to come through," and I just be like, "Delete, delete." <laughs> <laughs> no, it would come. It would come through somebody and say, "What do you think of this?" And I'm like, "No." Nah. But then, you know, it's like that was a luxury I had was having that guaranteed work where I could go to the bush, have a vehicle to myself, create the content, um, and I, I do think it could be saturated, saturated. But I also think there's probably enough work to go around as well. It'll be sort of equal people can only take on so much work you can only do so many trips and there's always people looking to go on safari absolutely i agree with you there i think like yes it's absolutely saturated saturated i wouldn't call it oversaturated but it is saturated there is a lot of people trying to do this there is a lot of um content creation creators and wildlife photographers and all of those kind of things i think yeah but the thing is, if you go in with that mindset of like, no, there's too many people doing this, yeah, then you're going to fail. Like, then you're not gonna mm-hmm. do it. Um, it's the same. Like I always say, like, or I've, I always say, I've seen this <laughs> this quote that says, like, if you think that in, uh, an industry is oversaturated, go and look at the water aisle. Like, there's literally mm-hmm. cra- um, hundreds of mu- hundreds of companies that are selling bottled water and they're yeah, making exactly. a profit of it because they're doing it differently or like doing doing this marketing there. Mm-hmm. So I think it's you know if you want it bad enough you can make it happen uh, yep. and i and think that's it's where just you're... about sorry on you go yeah and I, I just think it's about finding like your um your niche and your specific way of doing things and uh like i don't know just stupid example i when like i started getting into photography and stuff i saw a lot of people doing like educational reels and talking about like photography in general but I didn't see anyone doing much about like f- wildlife photography and like specifically teaching people about wildlife photography. And I enjoy doing that so much. And I got so many questions from people. So I was like, let me start teaching like my audience and share what I'm learning and what my knowledge and what I thought wanted to know when I first started, started wildlife photography. 
and and i feel like i did something different there there might be other people that are doing the same that i just didn't see but i think it's it's just about finding that little gap in the market where you can do something that nobody else is doing already or mm-hmm. or even just the, the even just the thing of you being you as a person you exactly, will create yeah. connections and you will create people who like you as a person and who will want to work with you or mm-hmm. uh, come on safari with you or learn from you or whatever it might be like you just being you as a person is unique enough to like get going as exactly. a content creator if that makes sense i think that's where that's where it becomes where you you can set yourself apart by being a nice person to work with and then also having the good work ethic that's where that's where people will want to work with you if they're like yeah, it was a pleasure to work with this person so we'll use them again and I think if you're freelance and you're looking for, if you're doing like the content creation side, you only need a handful of clients throughout the year to keep you busy. So, and there's so many lodges going around. So if you can get three, four, five regular people who are sending you places throughout the year, yeah, it's, it's not too much to, but you actually need to keep yourself going. Absolutely. Like there's, there is so much work out there to do. There is so many companies and there's also like, talking about the concentration and like the influencer marketing if we want to like put that in there as well uh, that is like a billion dollar industry like there is a lot of money to go around and i think there is enough work for people to do uh, and that's the thing i think you, if you just work hard enough there will obviously like if you don't work hard enough and you don't put in the effort and you don't believe in yourself yeah, then you probably will fail because you you feel like oh everybody else is getting jobs and I'm yeah. not getting a job. If you have that mindset, yeah, it won't do very well. But there will be people who start going like two years from now, three years, five years, ten years from now, who will end up being super successful doing the exact same mm-hmm. thing because they have the right mindset and they're doing the right thing. It's just about you putting in the work and, and um I don't know, effort. <laughs> and, exactly. and finding finding the way you can do things differently and i think definitely everything's possible for sure um okay let's see should we do like two more questions and then wrap yeah. it up um okay what's the hardest part about being a wildlife photographer the hardest part is probably starting out i would say which is pretty much what we've been discussing <laughs> I would say becoming one is probably the hardest part about being a wildlife photographer. I think once you are a wildlife photographer, things get a bit easier. You get more opportunities and then you find yourself in, yeah, like just with even with time and tide, you know, getting the opportunities to be in vehicles by myself. So actually just getting to the stage of being a wildlife photographer, which is pretty much what we've spoke about this whole podcast. <laughs> yeah. That is the hardest part. And I think afterwards, after that, it becomes easier and you just get yourself in the right place at the right time and then you're you're going to get the shots but what about you yeah i agree with you i think i think the hardest part is also as you say like okay figuring out how am i going to make a living from this like in the business side of it um like as we as we spoke about earlier i think because you you worked for time and tide and that was you know your stepping stone um into the industry that way while i've the way i've done it is like creating my own business around it and then building that up and so on and and figuring out so that for me has been a big thing of like how do i make this into a business and a profitable business and like um that's been that's been definitely the hardest part but as you say i think as soon as you get going and as soon as you get started and you start realizing it's like this aha moment of like 
oh wow like this is possible i can do this this is happening and then mm-hmm. after that it kind of like starts snowballing and then obviously it hits times where it's tough and all those kind of things absolutely but that's definitely the hardest part it's just the the first like step of like okay for me it was going full-time with it because i started as, as like a side gig while still working full-time at a, at a lodge but um then when we were going full time, I was like, okay, this is scary. This is crazy. Like, how how can I do this full time? But then as things go on, you start realizing that, no, you know what? It's it's great. Like, I can do this. And jobs, there is money around. Yeah. There is jobs around. There is stuff to do. So, yeah. I would say if, if you're not a very patient person, I would say patience is one of the, one of the hardest parts about wildlife photography. Um, obviously, you see you see the pictures that we post, and that was you know from a ten minute sighting on day five of looking for animals, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so if you're not a very patient person, then that could be definitely a, a challenging thing for you. But once you know how the industry works, and once you know exactly how your camera works inside and out, then it, it gets easier, and opportunities sort of come your way. Absolutely, I agree with that. Yeah, patience and like. It's funny because, yeah, if we talk about like the actual like photography part of like when we're actually out there shooting, I think, as you say, patience, but then it's also like, it's about patience, but then also when something happens, happens, it's about being quick. Mm -hmm. Like you need to sit and wait and then be super quick when it happens. So you can't be like a slow person either. Like you, you know (laughs) what I mean? Which like patience and being quick usually like kind of contradict each other, but you need to have a combination of both. You need to have a combination. You need be patient but be ready at the same time exactly exactly uh, okay last one uh, what photographers have influenced you the most you can you can think about this one for a little bit if you want to um good question i'm trying to think back to when i was starting so when i was first starting at time and tide uh, the photographer who had been there the season before was uh, well Burrard lucas so um, he was the guy who sort of invented the, the beetle cam thing. So he was he was getting those super super low angle shots with the, elef- the elephants and the lions and the leopards looking right into the camera. And he was also yeah yeah he does he does very well with uh, with photography now. And he's he had a book a couple of years ago called the photographing the black leopard, which was up in Kenya. Um, again, he was using camera traps there. And he's also done a lot of stuff with sort of long exposures where you'd have the lions and then you'd also do a long exposure to get the Milky Way. So he's, he's experimented quite a bit in in photography. So he was definitely, because he had just been to Time and Tide the year before I before I went there, I was like, oh, who's this guy? I need to do better than him so I can stay here for another year. And then going through, I think then the the Italian guy who went on his work, workshop, uh, Michele Bavasano, um he's definitely influenced influenced me not even not so much in the actual shooting but the the editing um how how he processes his images has always been something i enjoyed seeing from the start and i was like what's he doing here so i actually did one of his editing tutorials two three years ago and it helped me a lot with editing uh, photography so you know off the top of my head i would say those two guys so to finish up with a wildest kruger stories classic that we ask all our guests that, that come onto the podcast can you tell us a like funny story from the bush, uh, either with like guests or funny situations with wildlife or whatever it might be, and a like scary or kind of like crazy story from the bush? Yep. So um, there's always plenty of stories from the bush. 
The first thing I'm thinking of for a funny one is probably, I've actually both of them could come from, from Botswana now that I think about it. The funny one was, so I mentioned it was a horseback place. So there was a, two, two couples came and the guys didn't ride horses and the, the, the uh, wives did ride horses. So we used to do a thing where you could ride like 20 k's between camps and in the middle you would stop for, for your lunch fare. So my job was to take these guys on a game drive to the lunch spot where the, the, they would meet their wives who had been on the horses. And as we're driving there, there's a sort of channel on the river and I say to the guy next to me, I'm like, we can, we can drive through here. Eh? And he's like, yeah, 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 we can go through. I'm like, are you sure? Because we were swimming in here like last week. He's like, no, no, we can go through, we can go through. So I'm like, okay, so I drive down into this, into this river and it was so deep that the guys in the back were getting wet. So oh. I was up to I was up to like my belly button with the water trying to drive through this thing. And please tell me you didn't turn your car off or you didn't. No, stall? we got well, we got through and out the other side, and oh, then I was like, right. oh, everything seems pretty fine. But then, like about a kilometre along the road, there's like some saddlebell storks. So I stopped to watch the saddlebell storks, and then we oh. go to turn on the engine, and there was nothing. <laughs> nothing. And there was, was there still water in the in the like engine, maybe or like? Yeah, yeah, there must have been. So. Oh, no. We managed to radio the guys back at camp and they came to the other side of the river with the other truck to pick us up. But me and the guests had to strip their underwear and carry, carry our bags above <laughs> our head going back through, back through to the other vehicle. And then I took them round to meet the wives on a boat afterwards. Oh, uh, but they said it was the best day of our safari in the end. So I got away with that one. It's an adventure, I guess. Like. Yeah, it was, it was a proper adventure. But I was, I was pretty worried because I think I flooded the, the land cruise. It was, it was pretty screwed after that. But honestly, like... I feel like that's it's okay. I don't know this much that much about like the cars and stuff. But from what I've understood, the only thing you mustn't do is like turn the car off and then try to turn it on again. Like when you're in the water, yeah, but you yeah. were out of the water. So like, yeah, I thought I thought that's I not your survived. fault. <laughs> that's not your fault. I think you did the right thing. But no, I there was I'd no survived. there was no like crocodiles or anything in the in the river, hey? Uh, there is, yeah, it's there's crocodiles oh in in there, but there was none in that. Apparently, there was none in that section where we went through. Oh but, my yeah. <laughs> so that was quite a good one. And then the same story with different guests was at the actual lunch spot when people were going from one camp to the next. Yeah. We would, you know, have, we would have groomsmen looking after the horses while they were relaxing, having their lunch. And we also took those little camp beds so people could have siestas. So I grabbed one of the little camp beds and I went into the, into the bush to get some peace and quiet. And I was just lying on the little camp bed and the groomsmen all started shouting and screaming. And I was like, what are these guys doing? They're going to disturb the guests. So I stood up and there was two horses like running towards me. So I'm like, okay, I'll stand up so the horses don't run over me. So I stood up and I was like, hey, I'm here, horses. And they got a fright and turned to the right and right behind them was a lioness <gasps> who was chasing these two horses. And then this lioness was, the lioness was like looking right at me as she's chasing these horses. But luckily she, she kept her eye, she turned then took her attention back to the horses and she turned after those guys and was chasing them and then one of our guides let off a bear banger which is what we used to carry to to spook the animals so oh he fired God. his bear banger just as this lion it must have been about two meters behind this horse when he when he set it off and the lion disappeared the horses ran the 15k back to the main camp by themselves and we had to oh. take the guests to the next camp on the boats but I paced out from, from my bed to where the lioness turned was nine meters. It was nine big steps to where. No. <laughs> oh, my yeah. word. That's crazy. Yeah. And yes. I've also in Zambia, I've been, I've been stuck under a tree with no power in the vehicle and the lions climbed the tree and were on the branches above us. That happened in Zambia too. So. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. That oh was weird word. behavior because 
it's very rare lions will pay attention to people in a vehicle, but this one climbed the tree and then went on the branches above us to look at us in the vehicle from... Oh, really? So what, like, it wasn't like just, oh, it happened to climb that specific branch. No, it was no, kind of like, like looking at you guys. Yeah, it was, it was like, let's go up this tree, go across this branch and sit right above the vehicle. So we were stuck oh, there for 45 minutes and somebody had to come and push us out of the way with their vehicle. Oh, my word. That's crazy. Yeah, so, yeah oh, that's a like crazy moments. story, you say? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, luckily you and survived both of them. Yeah, and, and like the, so the horse safari uh, was the horses, you said like, like this time the horses were there because you guys had taken like the guests to the specific place, mm -hmm. but like, there's thunder again, if, if you guys can hear it <laughs> in the microphone, um, but like where the horses were based, like at nighttime and stuff, could like, could like lions get into like no, the no, paddock? No, no, it was super, it would, they would have like a small, like single line electric fence around the paddock and then they were all in their own individual stables as well, so okay, very so safe at like night. And I, I'm sure there was at least one watchman there 24, like all night, you know, with a fire going, so. Okay, okay, cool. So then they were safe that way. But yes, yeah, that's yeah. that's crazy. But you didn't, you never went out like on horseback because you don't, you said you don't ride horses. Do you? Yeah, do you they wouldn't allow, it, it wasn't like, it was a place for experienced riders because mm. of the situations you can end up in with elephants and buffaloes and lions and stuff. So I wasn't allowed yeah. to go on the horses. It wasn't like you could just jump on and do a pony trek round. No, exactly. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yes, I would love to go there because I'm I'm yeah. a horse girl, so yeah, that's like how you got that would there, exactly. be awesome. <laughs> yeah. But you've heard the story of uh, sidetrack. But you've heard the story of when Craig uh, he lied on his interview, said he knew how to ride horses to go. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you could have done that, and then I didn't say that. I, I, I lied quite a lot when I was starting. Was winging it. You know, can you do can you do interiors? Yeah, of course I can. Yeah, YouTube. Yeah, sure. How do you shoot interiors? <laughs> so I, w I winged it that way, but not with horse riding. No, that would have been silly. That's honestly a good tip, though. Like when it comes to starting yeah. out, photography, like YouTube is the way to learn like everything. You just need to know yep. what to search for. Um, but like that's the way, that's the place to learn everything. But also, um, as you say, like if someone, if you get a job where they ask, like it's, it's confidence is key. Just go for it, do it, and you will yeah. learn something. And then obviously don't like, say i don't know like so you can ride horses thing. when you can't <laughs> no that's that's a dumb idea ask craig um <laughs> but um but like you can learn along the way like don't don't feel like you you're limited because you and you can have to say no to a job because they're like oh can you do interior and you're like oh no i haven't done that before mm. if you can do photography you can probably figure it out you like, can learn it exactly. you can learn it you're not going to be the best of best right away but you can figure it out and you can learn it yeah, exactly. uh, so yeah, definitely wing it and uh, uh, fake it <laughs> until you make it, you know, that's kind of it. Yeah, we're basically just winging it and faking it. It's all good. Exactly, exactly. Okay, awesome. I think this has been a nice long podcast. Um, <laughs> but thank you so much for, for joining us. I think that was awesome. Uh, I hope we've answered quite a lot of questions for people who are wondering how to get started with wildlife photography yep. and a lot of technical stuff and all that stuff. I've had a lot of fun talking about photography. Uh, <laughs> yeah, me so, too. Yeah, could speak about photography all day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think we could go on for like another two hours talking <laughs> exactly, about like yeah. settings and <laughs> whatever. Um, but yeah, I hope everybody who's been listening have enjoyed this. And yeah, thank you all for joining us. And thanks again to Andrew for joining us on the podcast. No worries. Thank you very much. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,